Good morning. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host, welcoming you to the October 31st, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Early voting has begun in Virginia. Listeners, you know what to do next. Well, this will be one of the spookiest shows I ever do. My guest for the full hour is Brian Cunningham, Executive Director of UCI's Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute, practicing attorney and vigorous Twitter space contributor. Twitter, I say intentionally. We're aiming for a pretty definitive coverage of disinformation, misinformation, and even malinformation. I could not produce a scarier show for us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. On October 7th, I warned my kiddos about limiting their consumption of social media. I've limited it myself, reeling from the bad actors and useful idiots that stoke the bile while horrific things happen to innocents. My subsequent shows here in KUCI, I've declared this stretch the World Series of Disinfo, admonishing all you listeners to be very careful, very skeptical. Well, today, We'll take this moment head on with my guest for the full hour, Brian Cunningham, founding and current executive director of UCI's Multidisciplinary Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute, whom I had the privilege of recently meeting at a catastrophic cyber risk talk over on the other side of campus from this radio station. Brian Cunningham focuses on social solution of social solution oriented strategies addressing the technical, legal, and policy challenges to combat cyber threats, protect individual privacy and civil liberties, maintain public safety and economic and national security, and empower Americans to take better control of their digital security. Essentially, what the institute is about. Brian's extensive experience includes senior U.S. government intelligence and law enforcement positions, serving as deputy legal advisor to then National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, and in the Clinton administration as a senior CIA officer and federal prosecutor. He drafted significant portions of the Homeland Security Act and related legislation, helping to shepherd them through Congress. He was a principal contributor to the first national strategy to secure cyberspace, worked closely with the 9-11 Commission and provided legal advice to the president, national security advisor, national security council, and other senior government officials on intelligence, terrorism, cybersecurity, and other related matters. Brian also maintains his own private practice in privacy, cybersecurity, and data protection. Brian was awarded the National Intelligence Medal of Achievement for his work on information issues. He served on the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Biodefense Analysis, the Markle Foundation Task Force on National Security in the 
Information Age and the Bipartisan Policy Center Cybersecurity Task Force. He is also the principal author of legal and ethics chapters in several cybersecurity textbooks. Besides hosting his own History Happy Hour pod, Brian has appeared on Bloomberg, ABC, CBS, CNN, Fox, and other networks. Nice we have him here on KUCI. His social media handle is at Denver Cunning. Brian completed his BA at the University of Iowa at their Writers' Workshop, study at the University of Colorado, Boulder. His JD is from the University of Virginia. He comes to us live. Otherwise, he might be in another 16,000 listener space. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Brian Cunningham. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. I guess you could shorten my resume to just say I can't hold a job, but uh, it's great to be here, and it's it's quite appropriate, I think, that, as you mentioned, on Halloween, we're talking about disinformation, which has some tricks for everybody, very few treats, though, I'm afraid. A very, yeah. We think we're being treated, but that's that's the uh, the the charm of these this pernicious kind of uh, of of influence. So first, it's necessary to make some important distinctions, and w- along the way, the 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 better metaphors we can conjure up, Brian, the more traction everybody's going to have in making these distinctions. So there's the misinformation. I believe it's false and accurate information, and I. We've got lots of examples up our sleeves, both of us, but I'm, I'm going to let Brian use his faves. Um, then those, those are decent actors unwittingly amplifying information. Disinformation is false delivered information intending to mislead and manipulate, and there's lots of great metaphors for that. And once, once, those, once the disinformation is out there, the retractions are like too little too late. We'll talk about that, how that works structurally. Malinformation is truth used to inflict harm on a person, organization, or country, such as phishing, catfishing, doxing, swatting, and even revenge porn. So I, I will eventually I'm going to take us over to what the pie chart looks like as how much this is crowding our consciousness, all these disinfo, misinfo, and to some extent malinformation campaigns. So what do you want to point out is the, the most pernicious of those? What, and the examples and metaphors that you'd like to apply when you're, when you're doing this on your dog and ponies about cybersphere. <clears throat> Well, let me just say a few things to kind of set the scene. You used a very important term in one of your introductions. (laughs) Luckily, not the one about me. Uh, And that is useful idiots. And when people, especially people who didn't grow up during the Cold War, which I guess is most everybody now, um, you hear that term useful idiots. It sounds like it's just a pretty lame insult that some old person made up it's actually like so much of the disinformation and propaganda universe, a term originally coined by the Soviet KGB, although it was way before the KGB, probably the NKVD or one of the Soviet intelligence predecessors. And it's a term of art in Soviet, what they call disinformatia doctrine. And it's a person or it could be an institution who is not intending to be a propaganda asset of, in the case we're discussing, the Soviet Union, but is a quote-unquote useful idiot because the Russians could feed the person or the institution information 
and without meaning to do harm necessarily, the person would amplify it and promote it. And this, this like everything else in, in disinformatia, has been around for a century or more. And so when you're talking about misinformation under the definition that you read, uh, it, it, it usually means information that is false or misleading, but the person who you just heard it from is not deliberately trying to mislead you. Whereas true disinformation is, the best of it is based in some kernel of truth or seems to be based in some kernel of truth, but then it's completely twisted and or fabricated to do harm, to spread a narrative that the purveyor of it wants it to be spread. And I want to catch us up to the modern day and please. take your listeners. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, please do catch us up where you want to take us. Well, I, yeah, I want, I, want to, I, want to, I want to take your listeners down this rabbit hole with me, but I just want to m mention one historical example to kind of give us some context. There's an amazing set of books that I recommend to your listeners based on something called the Mitrokin Archive. And Mitrokin was literally a KGB file clerk and archivist during the Cold War. And he became very anti-Soviet during some of the repressions of the 60s. And so he hand-wrote notes over a 10-year period and brought thousands of KGB documents, Russian intelligence, Soviet intelligence documents, out to the West in the 80s. And there have been all kinds of books written around this stuff over, over the last three or four decades. Um, but one of the stories that is real and has actually been admitted to be true by the head of Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service years after is what I'm sure some of us will remember is still floating around the Internet in dark places. This idea that the United States government at Fort Detrick, Maryland, deliberately created AIDS. And there were many strains of this in the 80s and 90s. There's even a member of the United States Congress who still sits in her seat who um, created a bunch of riots in L.A. around this story one time, that the United States government had deliberately invented AIDS in order to essentially commit genocide against black people. And this story, which was originally published in an Indian newspaper in the 80s, was entirely invented by Soviet intelligence, by the KGB. Uh, however, this thing really took hold, and they actually cleverly named it internally Operation Infection. Uh, it took hold all around the world. and. People died. Lots of people died uh, because of various ramifications of this Soviet disinformation uh, and, and, you know, refusing to be treated and things like that. Um, and this all came out. It's all verified. It was verified by the head of Russian intelligence in 1992. So what does that tell us? Well, that is an example of the Soviet disinformation playbook that goes back 100 years or more. You take something that is of extreme emotional interest around the world, you figure out what people's worst fears about it could be, and then you create distribution of your phony story through sources that at least some people will find credible. And I like to say early on, and when I talk about this, I'm, I'm not an expert at all in modern-day uh, internet use or disinformation. Um, 
but I am an expert in Soviet propaganda. And so when I fell down this rabbit hole I'm about to talk about, it set off many alarm bells in my head, and I went back and reread parts of the Matrokin archive and things like that. Because long before I was a cybersecurity expert, I was a KGB analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency, and uh, I thought those skills would never become useful again, but apparently now they are. So let me stop there and see if you want to take the question some other way. If not, I'm going to just talk about my experience on X, formerly known as Twitter. Well, the virus going viral, and the, it's, it's helpful for us to use that biological analogy so we can understand how the virus spreads in the cybersphere and how it metastasizes, how it mutates. And that is what we experience when we're either, when we're first, there's a first brush of uh, exposure to a cyber kind of viral data point of viral development and as I we also um, the other analogy that I know you use all the time and I think helps everybody figure out how this works is the lie has already in from the cyber it launched into the cybersphere the lie is all the way circled around the world before the truth gets out of bed yeah yeah but when in doubt you can always rely on Mark Twain or Churchill to come up with something useful um, <laughs> That's correct. And, and, and I think this experience I've had is that it will give a great example of how this stuff metastasizes, too. Well, let's do Let's go. Take it. Take it away. I'm not going to get in your way, uh, Brian. You've got, you've got all the goods, and I've got a lot of questions. <laughs> well, one of the hats I've worn in one of my careers, I think I've lost count of how many I've had now, uh, was uh, as a, a lawyer practicing in the area of international humanitarian law and the laws of armed conflict or what's more commonly known as um, war crimes law. And I did that for the U.S. government, among other things. And so when the war was launched by the brutal multiple war crime uh, Hamas activities of October 7th, actually by this point multiple thousands of war crimes, but we can talk about that later if you want, I decided to dip a toe into some of the more well-attended Twitter or X now spaces. And for those of you who don't know what these are, they're essentially electronic town hall meetings. So in New Hampshire, famously, they hold town hall meetings to decide a lot of important issues on governance, at least historically they have. And this is just a bunch of citizens showing up at a you know town hall or restaurant or something and Brian, debating Brian, stuff. Brian, just, I just want to use a, an additional analogy. There it's also a, like a water cooler in the way, the kind of vibe that sometimes and how they function and how people drop in and drop out and try yeah, something right. and they sort of stack up. Like I had a question about something that was mentioned like three speakers ago. So it's town that's hall right. and water cooler sort of captures the, the more informal and sort of uh, the, the vigor of it. The town halls are a little bit more formal than some spaces actually conduct that's themselves. That's true. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an excellent point. And like any human endeavor, all spaces are different, and a lot of them are their their culture is dependent on the person who runs them or people who run them. Uh, but I decided to I was asked to go on one of these things and essentially talk about the laws of armed conflict and how they were being followed or violated in the in the Hamas Israel conflict. And I did, and I happened to be on the air, so to speak, in a space that had 
30 or 40,000 people in it. When the alleged attack on the first hospital occurred, which seems like three months ago now, but I think it was only a week or two ago. So I happened to be live in this space with 40,000 of my closest friends when that happened. And it was the middle of the night in Gaza. And that's key. That's the moment. Yeah. When it happened in that space, in that, not the Twitter space, but when it happened in where that, that bombing had occurred, night is a very important feature of when that occurred. That's correct, yeah. And it's also not surprising, right, because modern warfare is largely fought at night, um, especially with advanced military systems like Israel has, because you have the advantage of you can see in the dark, and a lot of times your enemies can't. And you can, but, it's your narrative. You own the narrative, which is so important in that very that split minute moment. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very important point. So all of a sudden in this space, everything starts lighting up metaphorically with this idea that the Israeli Defense Forces had intentionally bombed a hospital in Gaza. And it's the middle of the night and nobody knows nothing and everyone decides it's a good time to start speculating. And essentially for three hours, I kept coming back to the same message, which is, guys, we don't know anything. It's the middle of the night. In two hours, the first time I said it, and then one hour, it's going to be light in Gaza. And I promise you that you will have people on these spaces who have military bomb damage assessment expertise, which I have a little bit of, but not as much as a lot of other people that will be on. And they'll tell you immediately. They, can, they, will, they will look with their eyes and they will tell you immediately, was this or was this not an IDF bomb? Now, it's important to understand in the context of the laws of armed conflict that even if it had been an Israeli drop bomb, that would not necessarily make it a war crime because, A, it could have been an accident. B, uh, unfortunately, as brutal as it is under the laws of war, if an enemy deliberately hides weapons, command and control, military capability inside civilian infrastructure, particularly sensitive infrastructure like a hospital or a mosque, that facility can become a legitimate target. You still have legal responsibility to try to minimize civilian harm if you're going to strike that target. And this is why you see the IDF leafleting and emailing and phone calling and text messaging and broadcasting on television all these um, warnings to move out of areas that are going to become the site of combat. Well, there was none, none of this done in, in the hospital at, at question, which is one of the reasons why I immediately, in, in my head, assumed this was not an IDF bombing. First of all, the U.S. Armed Forces and the Israeli Armed Forces, along with a few others, Canada, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, are intensely scrupulous about following the laws of armed conflict, even to the extent of putting their own troops and their own intelligence sources and methods at risk in order to protect civilians, going above and beyond what the law actually requires them to do. So my first thought, which I didn't say, was, if this had been an IDF strike, there would have been warnings given ahead of time. But the more important point I just kept repeating is, we're gonna know the answer to this question in a few hours, 
and you you all are doing something extremely dangerous because there's 40,000 people in here, but each one of those people is talking to other people. And if you put this out that it was a deliberate Israeli strike, it's going to have very dangerous and terrible consequences. So I finally got exhausted. I went to bed, and I was awakened in the middle of the night. I think it was like 4 a.m. our time with uh, a whole bunch of text messages on my phone and messages through X, direct messages to me. And, and they all essentially said, thank you for being the adult in the room yesterday. And I didn't really know what they were talking about, of course, because I had just woken up. So I flip on CNN, and it turns out that my own failure of imagination <laughs> did not allow me to imagine how, I, I don't like to brag, but how right I was to give these warnings. Because it turned out, not only was this obviously immediately conclusively clear, despite what the BBC and the New York Times and other networks were saying, that this was not an IDF bomb. The hospital wasn't even hit. Yeah, a parking lot, right? A parking lot was hit. There were cars, as you would expect, that were damaged and destroyed. There were other cars that weren't even touched, and there wasn't a shingle displaced from the roof of the hospital. One. Two, there was a crater in the parking lot, as one would expect if a munition lands somewhere, but it was infinitely too small to have been an Israeli weapon of war dropped from an airplane. And all the bomb damage experts that were talking were saying that, there was something very curious, though, <laughs> which is there was no shrapnel. Obviously, something hit that parking lot. As it turns out, the vast consensus of, of intelligence agencies who have opined on this and military experts is it was a rocket fired by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad against civilian targets, war crime, that went bad and landed where it wasn't supposed to. But whatever the actual cause was, there was no shrapnel. And so immediately this got spun by the, I'm just going to call them for shorthand Hamas propagandists, but there could have been useful idiots as well as actual propaganda assets, into, oh, <laughs> I kid you not, I was on this space live as this was evolving. Well, obviously this means that Israel has invented a new super weapon, top secret super weapon, that only kills people and doesn't leave much of a mark and much of a crater. Wow. Discounting the much more easy-to-understand explanation, Occam's razor, that someone in the dark of night had removed the shrapnel. Now, who was in control entirely of the hospital, the hospital parking lot, the neighborhood, the city at this point in time? Because IDF had not gone in at all. Well, obviously, it was Hamas. So when that theory of the superweapon was disabused, then the Hamas propagandists said, oh, look, here's a video, and it shows a, 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 a bright light in the sky, and obviously anyone who's ever been a fighter pilot knows that that is the light of a flare, which a fighter pilot would light off in order to prevent anti-aircraft weapons from attacking the plane. Well, a few problems with that. One... Israel would have had to have invented a time machine because the timestamp on the video put in the space by the Hamas propagandists was an hour after the strike on the parking lot, the accidental strike on the parking lot. 
A. B, to believe that story, you'd have to believe that the Prime Minister of Israel ordered a super-secret war crime to be committed, decided to break all the laws of war and not give any warning, sent in a fighter plane to drop the bomb intentionally on a hospital, and then told the pilot, hey, by the way, even though Hamas has no anti-aircraft weapons, as you're pulling your plane away, why don't you just drop some flares just to prove to the world that we committed this super-secret war crime? So it's ridiculous. I mean, at one point, I actually – I always try to be a little careful about how much humor to use in these horrible, tragic right. situations. Right. You do but have to be careful. You, yeah. Sometimes you have to laugh, right? So I, I posted in this space, I said, you know, when this one gets debunked, the Hamas propagandists are going to say that Israel worked with UFOs to conduct the strike. I mean, it's ridiculous. But here's the thing, and here's what's different about today as opposed to 50 years ago when I was – or. 30 years ago when I was a KGB analyst. Now the Internet amplifies this with a speed and a ferocity that causes real-world damage. What do I mean? Well, because of this disinformation about the hospital strike, Jordan and Saudi Arabia called off a conference that was supposed to happen with the president of the United States. Oh, by the way, that's another problem. You also would have had to assume that Netanyahu ordered this secret war crime while the president of the United States' plane was flying into Tel Aviv, which seems unlikely. But the summit was canceled by the Arab leaders because of this false claim that the IDF had targeted a hospital. Well, that conference, who knows what would have happened, but it could have provided humanitarian relief to the Palestinians. It could have even led to potentially... Uh, a peaceful solution. Who knows? And for sure what happened was hundreds of thousands of people around the world on the streets, and now this is metastasized to the point where, I kid you not, two days ago, I saw a posting that demonstrated that 302,000 people around the world had listened, had watched a video of Adolf Hitler speaking about the need to eliminate the Jews in Arabic. So someone had translated this into Arabic and posted it, and there was something like 22,000 favorable comments about Adolf Hitler and his plan for the Jews. So I just started to dive into this stuff because the real-world consequences in the modern times are so horrible, and I could give you 10 more examples. So what it, what happened was the the rumor around the world was cover for legit anti-actual, I'm not legit, actual anti-Semitic kinds of uh, right-wing kinds of terrorist kinds of, you know, sensibilities. I mean, it was, well, the dynamic was pretty ex- serious. Except, yes, except let me, let me make one slight correction there, which I think is important for people to understand. Um, I believe you said ultra right-wing. That's true. Also, ultra-left-wing. Right, but the, more this, the other. There, there, there's this almost diabolical intersection now between the two. I believe, and last time I looked, Congresswoman Tlaib, Rashida Tlaib, still had on her official U.S. government webpage that Israel bombed this hospital. Now, right, she is I haven't persistent. checked it in the last couple of days, so maybe they've taken no, it I, down. I thought saw but, somebody reacted to it yesterday, last night, so it's not – she's still um, – yeah – but, but and maybe so, and so it's too it, late. It's this, it's this intersection of left and right that's, that's terrifying, as well as all the other aspects of this. But it's not in any way, shape, or form accidental or unusual. We held a conference at 
the Institute in, um, I think it was 2017 or 18, with James Carville and some other experts on uh, Russian interference in the election. And one of the things we talked about is how, in some ways, run-of-the-mill for the Soviets and the Russians, all this activity is. They deliberately, China does it too, Iran does it too, they deliberately try to seek out the most divisive things they possibly can and amplify them. So we know now that um, in 2016, and I'm sure after too, Russian Soviet propaganda, these, these troll farms, were on both sides of Black Lives Matter, on both sides of abortion, right. on both sides of every aspect of the election. Their intended result is chaos with the intent of demonstrating that democracy as a system of government cannot work. And what's going on right now in Twitter space, X spaces, is, among other many, many other things, that. Hamas is the super wedge factor in, in this. I want just for people who may have tuned in, we've been letting Brian speak at length here, and so I want to make sure everybody knows. Brian Cunningham is the executive director of UCI's Multidisciplinary Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute. He's a practicing attorney, formerly senior CIA officer and federal prosecutor, principal contributor to the National Security Strategy to Secure Cyberspace, among other agencies he's been working with. So... I just, I want to look at the universal part of, well, no, I want to bring out, call out one thing, though. And I don't know if you know Denver Riggleman yourself directly, personally. I, I don't. I yeah. don't know. Okay. I know who he is, obviously. Right, right. And so he, as a, he calls himself a full-blooded redneck. And he's and he was, for a moment, uh -huh. with the Freedom Caucus when he was serving one term in the U.S. Congress. But he says that this is a widely skewed kind of cyber warfare favoring extreme right-wing right agendas. I understand what you're saying, Brian, is they are the right, extreme right and left meet on the other side, but I still want to really hammer on that it's it's favoring extreme right-wing agendas. So I now I want to, that you're talking about how the Russians were seeking the most divisive issues and so these algorithms, they're, they're culturally, they're very universal, they're omnipresent, they're agile, and that's how they keep working so well. Yeah, this is, um, we've, we've been talking about the old KGB pro propaganda term, useful idiots, meaning people or institutions that will uh, either unwittingly or for their own reasons um, propagate disinformation and propaganda. And you've just hit on something really important. What makes the modern era different, I believe, because the Russians have been doing this for 100 years. It, and in fact, you know, Sun Tzu thousands of years ago said the most important art of war is deception or words to that effect. I don't speak Mandarin or whatever the language was then. Um, <laughs> that, that now, regardless of the ideological beliefs of anyone who owns and operates Facebook, X, formerly known as Twitter, et cetera. And I'm not saying they don't have ideological beliefs. They do. But regardless of that, the business model has become clicks and eyeballs on a screen equals revenue. And it's been now conclusively shown that the most effective way that you can get people to click on things and watch things and therefore line your own pocket if you run a social media company is to steer people into the most extreme 
probably extreme good in some cases, but mostly hateful things you can steer them to. And so engage them. There's been yeah. There, there, there's been research that shows that I'm I didn't go back and pull this, so I'm just going to summarize it. I could be slightly off, but basically, if you go into a social media space and you search any topic that can become extreme it will become extreme in like three clicks or four clicks oh, or I did, ten clicks or something. one i i went I, i'm not going to overshare on this one but i went to look up a product that's been reformulated that i read about in a business section and it was one step away from a porn uh, video yeah so it didn't yeah, even take several i didn't have to click at all there it was ready to sh- pull up so i yeah so it's it's well, much more aggressive than just four or five click three four clicks later. Yeah, well, and, and I'm sure it's getting quote unquote better all the time. Um, <laughs> and you know, people ask what can be done about this. One thing that can be done is for the Securities Exchange Commission or another regulatory agency to figure out a way to legally and and through regulatory action <clears throat> sever this connection between making if you're a social media platform all your revenue coming from how extreme you can get people to be and i don't i don't begin to, i don't know enough about the details of how these companies operate to know exactly what that regulation is but until we can sever the financial motive to extremism and to disinformation uh it's going to be very hard to, to make any progress Right, those business models are very opaque, and how how that's engineered. And there was an effort on one space I listened to last night, uh, remedying this commodification of trafficking falsehoods, and that it still it still requires a great deal of discipline and deep breathing, things that aren't happening, uh, you know, immediately with and uh, yeah. So it's it's a problem. So I. With, when we're looking at these forces, Brian, I, I want to sort of see cyber communication as like a big pie chart. And I want to know your understanding is the extent to which, what, to what, how much of the proportion of this disinfo, I'm going to, I think disinfo is the major part of the disinfo, misinfo, malinfo. Is it an expansion? Expanding portion. Are we like how much of the pie is it taking up at this point? Could you just venture to take a guess at? I mean, it's increasing the momentum. It's. I I don't I don't have a good guess on what the percentage of all the information out in the world that's disinformation is, but what I do know is that the spaces that I've been in that are the most heavily attended. I'm not going to say successful, but or the people that put them up, this is their measure of success, uh, are just flooded. I mean, when I was in that space with 40,000 people, uh, I would venture to guess there were hundreds, certainly dozens, of not just useful idiots, actual foreign intelligence officers in those spaces doing their day job, which is putting out this information undercover, um, I'm tempted to reveal someone's handle, but I won't do that because unless you know somebody's a foreign intelligence agent for certain, you better not out them. Um, and so what my point there is those intelligence operatives for various countries that are in those spaces, they obviously believe that it's worth their time and effort to be in there. 
Yep. And so to me, that's a strong measure of success. By the way, on the flip side, almost all of the spaces, in fact, I think every space I've ever been in is recorded from start to finish. Right. And this guy, uh, uh, Samuel Bank, Bankman Freed, I think his name is, the, the kind of crypto grifter guy, um, he, he has already had uh, legal action against him based in part on things he said on a Twitter space, and it was Twitter then, in the room of the guy who I was in on the day of the bombing, used against him in court. He essentially perjured himself, and the other side said, well, do you remember saying X, Y, or Z? He said, I never said that, and then they played a recording of this Twitter space. So there are, there are not only bad intelligence officers in these spaces, there are law enforcement people in these spaces too. So that's just another reason for everybody to use caution. And there's also, there's... There's NFT Bitcoin merchants. They're all, they're just it just feels really creepy oh, yeah. to be in those. I've just started, looked checked in a few profiles and I go, get me get me out of here before before Twitter X finds me spending time with them and throws me throws my algorithm way off. Well, I I wanna I I could have if we had like about a three hour show, I would <laughs> wanna call out the original disinfo campaign and maybe you could say okay we'll do that again later on Claudia but I just let me just lob the idea the thought out and for a later show is public relations is the original disinformation campaign well for sure I mean and this is I don't know maybe the third oldest profession after prostitution and espionage um, and one of the things that started happening in some of the more, I would say, credible, uh, balanced spaces I've been in, is you get what, obviously, from the way they speak, are professional public relations and persuasion experts. And uh, a piece of disinformation will come out, and in the space, these experts will describe exactly why that particular piece of disinformation and the way it is being communicated in real time is so persuasive and they'll talk about the fundamentals of public relations of persuasion um, you know fear is a strong motivator uh, divisiveness gets eyeballs all the things we've been talking about but also even just the way that you present your arguments and and, and they're doing they're analyzing this in real time yes yes and, and I have some, sort of mixed feelings about that right because there probably are a lot of people in there with bad motives that are learning how to be better propagandists. But what are you going to do? You can't keep everything a secret. So that's when when I talk about disinformation in a very small, small circle. And I'm trying to, because we need to be a bit prescriptive here at some point and talk about how how people can identify it. Because it is so subtle. It's a grain of truth exists, and then all this other narrative is is built and wrapped around it. But I, uh, Brian, like to suggest that if people think what they've just consumed in social media, if it makes them, if it makes them feel nauseous, if it makes them feel uh, fearful or something like, wait, take, take a moment and think about what, cause I'm thinking of where people have accused uh, candidates, presidential candidates of sexual harassment inside the Capitol building. And I thought, I 
I just got to think this is a disinfo campaign. It's just, it's making me feel awful. And that's sort of, isn't that a, the first kind of indication that this may not be right at all? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, for people that actually want to <laughs> know truth instead of wanting to know what already reinforces their preconceived notion, which I'm afraid that space is getting smaller every day. But for people that actually want to fight disinformation, at least from getting into their brains too deeply, I, the most important piece of advice is just what you said, take a breath. Um, before you repost something, before you like it, click the like button, before you share it with friends, first of all, read the whole thing. I mean, I can't tell you how many, it's probably happened thousands of times where somebody will post an article and put their own headline on it, and then you read the article and it says the exact opposite of what they think it says. So first of all, read the whole thing before you do anything with it. And secondly, figure out, if you can, the source and what might be the motivation of the source behind the story. But then just think about how, how much does this reinforce something I already believe or I already want to believe? And to your point, how much is this so disgusting or so sensational or so potentially impactful, if true, right. um, that it sets off alarm bells. It should set off alarm bells. I mean, when I see something, when I see quote-unquote breaking news, that is either something that I think is a terrible event or something I think is a great event, the first thing I try to do is figure out, has this actually happened? Because it's almost an inviolable rule that the the more sensational something is, the less likely it is to be true. Not always. I mean, Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, you know, 9-11 towers did come down. But in many cases, if you see something that you strongly, strongly, strongly agree with that's just happened or you strongly, strongly, strongly disagree with, start thinking about whether or not it's real. And as um, another, th- I, I have finished it. I am going to finish it this week, though. I, I just picked it up yesterday, Denver Riegelman's uh, book, that uh, it's entitled The Breach, The Untold Story of the Investigation of January 6th. And in there, he says it's hit that these these disinfo postings, quote, they're hitting believers right in the amygdala. <laughs> that's I mean, that's that's what's activated. I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if if the forensics in a few more years are going to find more enlarged amygdalas and the, the rest of the frontal lobe is just getting puny. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about the medical soundness of that, but it's an amazingly apt. Oh, it's very, uh, no, Brian, I've heard it many, many in very, very many medical situations. I am not amplifying a mythology though. They do talk about the amygdala a lot. So uh, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Brian Cunningham. He's the executive director of UC Irvine's Multidisciplinary Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute. He's a practicing attorney and has been in various federal agencies involved with uh, our security. So I don't know uh, if we could talk, if we have a moment to say about the role that tribes have in confirmation bias, engagement, cementing the the belief systems. We'll move we'll move out of the amygdala, out of everybody's brains, and then just go like the 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 larger organism, the tribe, is such so important. 
Yeah, that's right. And and I've dabbled into some spaces that actually don't have anything to do with anything I care about just to see if the techniques are the same. And they are. Whether you're looking at something about the Hamas-Israel war, whether you're looking at something about election denial, whether you're looking at something about abortion, the techniques are the same. And they, they rely on everyone going into their corners and they rely on reinforcing beliefs that you already have for the most part. And so, you know, when the Internet, when Al Gore invented the Internet, um, <laughs> there was this sort of hope that this would bring a new renaissance in awareness and thinking and education because now everyone in the world could have access to all kinds of different points of view and they would be able to reach their own conclusions. And, in fact, what's happened is exactly the opposite of that. And it's happened in television news, too. You, most people tend to only watch things and only read things that they already agree with. And I guess that's another thing I would say to people who want to actually try to have a balanced point of view is if you watch MSNBC from nine, I mean, this is a very old 61-year-old guy thing, but you could use it as a metaphor for the Internet, too. If you watch an hour of MSNBC, go watch an hour of Fox afterwards. Um, try to consume things that you know you probably don't agree with. First of all, it's helpful in an argument or a debate to know the other person's right. side of the it's story. It's fodder for you to talk, take up. Yep. Right. But also, you know, sometimes the other side has a point. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. Yeah, well, I'll leave that. So, and f as far as Al Gore inventing the Internet, that is a facetious uh, joke. It is not a, a misinformation uh, that Brian is bringing about that's going to be circulating. So that, that's an <laughs> old joke. That, and so, you know, I mean, that's, but that gets to be a kind of a fine line. So I, I want to push out because it's, it's starting to, there's a lot of scrutiny, finally, after the, Speaker of the House has been elected by the GOP caucus that Speaker Mike Johnson is a bit of a disinfo campaign in, in like a person. Yeah, honestly, I haven't I haven't followed that issue at all. I know that um, he's said to still be a, a election denier from 2020. Um, I don't know. I don't actually I don't know. You, you tell us tell us what you mean. I don't know anything about that. Well, there there are now back lots of receipts coming out, and right, I'm taking my time, taking some deep breathing, and that I mean I saw it first in the New York Times printed edition. That's I'm I'm much older than Brian is, and that's I'm using uh -huh. those analog examples of things I consume. But the, there 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 is this um, relationships in his family. And, and things just that just don't make sense. And I think, and to use this analogy a little further, this data point is, when we look at a New York Times article, it's all, if it's all his comments, Johnson's comments, friends of his, uh, people, members of his church, people from his district, instead of people that are speaking from other unaffiliated sources, that it's, it's right now, it's like a big, he's a big PR campaign happening and people are coming up with receipts that have a different explanation on this and are flagging lots of things that may 
I mean, we're saying this, this is a live show, October 31st, 2023, but there is going to be a lot discovered about this guy that's second in line for the U.S. presidency. So I, I just want to put that out there, how there's different forms disinfo can take. So, um, oh, I, yeah. And, and astroturfing, it's another form of disinformation that is creating, you, you were alluding to that earlier, how the Russians figured that out in 2016, how to astroturf both sides of Black Lives Matter. And then we have the, it, my concern here, Brian Cunningham, is that with astroturfing, it's, it's undermined the, what might be actual authentic grassroots movements. It's made leadership and policymaking really untenable. This is a very pernicious development. Yeah, it is. And by the way, we haven't even talked about deep fakes. So I'm going to say what that Go is for in a it. second. But one of the things that has struck me is how already just using traditional disinformatia techniques, how much damage has been caused around the world by things like that false reporting of the IDF bombing of the church. But none of it that I've seen so far is actually completely falsified information. So even the videos that that were being shown in this space to try to, quote, unquote, prove that uh, there was a flare shot out of a fighter plane, they weren't fake videos. They were just taken from timestamps that were, you know, an hour afterwards or— Or from Syria or, or— Yeah. Or they were misdescribed. But there are going to be, I guarantee you, in this election, in 2024 election, before we're done, you're going to see Joe Biden and Trump, assuming they're the nominees, saying things that they never said. Doing things they never did. Get scare themselves. Go Google Obama and deep fake. There's dozens of videos of Obama saying things that he's never said, and they're very persuasive. And those were made a long time ago, before artificial intelligence and before a lot of the technology we have now so so it's going to get even worse uh astroturfing um just to let your listeners know is my understanding of it is essentially where you where a a bad actor creates a false impression of a grassroots movement um and and your point about that uh is a good one that that damages the authenticity and persuasiveness of real grassroots movement true and it's a problem but it's even going to get worse when uh, you can just, as can be done right now, you can literally put words in anyone's mouth you want. And, you know, the problem is once the thing's revealed as a fake, it'll be too late. The lie will have made it around the world before the truth put its shoes on. So to continue terrifying everyone involved in listening this interview is, we are now in worse shape than ever for the next pandemic, perhaps maybe a climate uh, emergency happening. We are now in much much weaker, fragile position because of disinformation. Yeah, there's a aphorism that I should have looked up. It comes out of a, a, a movie, but I'm sure it existed before that, that says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled off is convincing humanity he didn't exist. And the reason I mention that is you know, whatever your whatever your listeners' views on on Trump, uh, he's done something that is terrifyingly 
effective. And that is he's convinced 30 to 40 million Americans, at least, that there really is no such thing as objective truth. It's basically whatever he says it is. And once you have that significant a portion of your society that cannot be persuaded by facts, you got a real problem. And I think, you know, to pile on the tricks on this Halloween, uh, I don't put it, I say this cautiously, but I don't put it beyond the realm of possibility that there will be armed, significant armed violence in the United States around the 2024 election, partly because you got this massive number of people that just won't believe their own eyes. They won't believe their own ears. They won't believe facts. And the, 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 the lack of, well, the, the outright contempt for institutions of government, whether it's the FBI, and I'll, I'll tell you as a CIA officer, I'm like allergic to the FBI. I don't, I'm trained not to love them, but they do serve an important purpose in society. And I'm not saying they've never made mistakes or done bad things. Of course they have. But, you know, they, people don't trust the courts now. They don't trust the Supreme Court. They don't trust the lower courts. They don't trust the trial courts. They don't trust the FBI. They don't, they don't trust the military. The institution, the media, the institutions that have held Western democracy together for 270-some years are at risk. And uh, I think we're in for a bad time. Well, there are more frightening things to to conclude. I actually I want to bring in one algorithm in play right now that I think is uh, one sort of pushing back on these pernicious algorithms. I would say are the labor union victories around the U.S. How so? Well, that that they're feeding. There's a, a feedback loop of labor has is exercising power. Labor is dealing with the asymmetry of management and the rank and file and how that there are concessions that are being made to workers so that, that right now there is a different, uh, there is a little more leverage with the, in the, what were an, uh, asymmetric participants in in the whole business and the economy? Well, I, I, I'm way outside my lane here. I have no expertise in But I just wanted to bring but, up, but, 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 it's got but, an algorithm will, value. But, hold on. I, I will say this, though. Anything that happens that makes Americans feel, or in any country, feel more optimistic about their own economic prospects is an antidote to some of this. Because just like they saw in Germany after the Weimar Republic was stood up, just like we're seeing now, um, if you're, if you have, if you're a person in a society who has concluded that your economic prospects are dim or zero, um, any all kinds of propaganda and disinformation take hold because you need somebody to blame for that. And so, anything that makes Americans actually financially better off and more importantly feel like they're financially that's the, better off. That's what I'm saying. That's the point. Helps. Okay. Well, th you know, uh, Brian, I hope we can do something like this, picking up everything we didn't uh, get to get to today. I want to thank you so much for giving me this whole hour today. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, if you'll forgive me a little plug. Uh, plug away. People, if people are super depressed right now and they want to go listen to something that's a little bit more fun. Uh, 
a British colleague and I do a podcast called The Hidden History Happy Hour, which you can find on Spotify, Twitter, formerly known as Twitter, uh, everywhere, uh, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com is our website. We, we tell obscure stories from history and try to tie them to lessons of today, but while we do that, we, we drink the cocktail that we think our we, characters would have been drinking. Thank so. you. Thank you, Brian. I, I'm glad you got that plug in. I gave it a, a, a passing glance in your introduction. Thank you so much for being on the show. My guest today was Brian Cunningham, Executive Director of UCI's Multidisciplinary Cybersecurity Policy Research Institute. Thank you so much. Well, that's my wrap. Next week will be Gabe Rosales, UCI Anthropology PhD candidate, fully involved in bringing music to the carceral setting that's Donovan State Prison with remarkable yields. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Boo.